Amen, amen, amen. Well, again, welcome to Mercy Fellowship. You may be seated. We are so glad you could join us here in person or with us uh, online. If you're with us here in person, welcome to Donut Stimulus Day. Uh, you didn't know that part of the $1.9 trillion bill was donuts on Sunday. Um, and so, no, those are just uh, our way of, of collectively grieving the loss of an hour of sleep. And so I'm just so thankful you guys would gather here with us here at Mercy Fellowship. We are saved by Jesus' work, we are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And so today we're continuing our series uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians called Endure, Finding Courage in Weakness. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 11 through 21. And while you're turning there, uh, just by preface, if I get a little geeked out in this sermon, uh, it's because this is one of my absolute favorite sections of Scripture. And I know like as a pastor, you're like not supposed to say that, Um, but like this is just one that I've just really enjoyed. There's so much here, and so, um, you know, just bear with me. I haven't even had a donut, uh, and I'm already a a little amped up. And so, um, while we are turning there, I do want you to ask yourself, what drives you? What drives us? What motivates you? Like, what, what gets you out of bed in the morning? I mean, maybe today it was uh, the donuts. I don't know, but, but, you know, really, I want you to ask, why, why are you here today? What are the forces or the fears or the influences that you can consciously recognize that that drive you in how you parent or how you work or how you live? And, And I think that a challenge that we have is that so much of what motivates us is under the surface in our souls. And so much of what pushes us is, is out in the culture that we don't even recognize has an influence on us. Like, like a fish not knowing they're in water because that's just what they've always known. And so I don't, I don't believe that we're always consciously aware of key motivators. And so there's a few key categories I want us to try to think about as handles as we get into this text today for understanding ourselves uh, and, and our motivations because a lot of what we find motivation in or from either is derived from us or leads back to us. We are very self focused people. We live for ourselves. And so this impacts our internal motivations. It changes our external engagements. And and these manifest themselves in these, I think, four ways. Number one, self-improvement right? This is, this is one that we're now into March. If you had New Year's resolutions, right? Those are so far in the rear view. Maybe you forgot what your like 2020 resolutions were because everything's just out the window, right? But, but we all in some sense want to be our better version of ourselves. And so we, we pick an arena, we pick an area of our life, we come up with a plan, and then we start to chunk it out. And like, all right, I'm going to get better in this area, in your finances, in your health, in your, in your fitness, in your relationships, right? We, we pick something and, and then we, we go for it. And really, uh, we believe that somehow if we achieve that, that we are going to be our best selves. And so we're driven because something inside of us says we're not good enough, right? You wouldn't want to self-improve if you didn't think you needed improvement, Right? 
Okay, number two, self-fulfillment. Okay, I, I just want to be happy. I want to enjoy life. I want to have a rich and full and flourishing life. And so whatever I have to do or whatever I have to say so that I can have my, my best life, and this is compelling for us because it's recognizing and kind of scratching the itch that we're not truly satisfied. You would not or we would not pursue self-fulfillment if we already were fulfilled. So what we're doing when we're motivated by self-fulfillment is what we're really saying is, I'm not full. Maybe if we're honest, we're a little empty. All right, number two. So those are both internal. Number, number three, rather, and four get external, and that's this affirmation. We get driven by affirmation. It's an external driver to, to find or, or define who we are in relation to others. I am okay as long as these people accept me. I'm okay as long as I'm in this group. I'm okay as long as this this one person, this one relationship is okay. And they accept me and they, they know who I am. And as long as they're pleased with me, I'm okay. And what this is showing us is that we absolutely desire community. Even today, right? I mean, if, if you're with us online, we're, we're glad that you're gathering. Um, but we also recognize that gathering in person is important because we're not meant to be alone. And so we're, we're all searching for our place, searching for our people. And we want to know, like, like where is my place and, and who are my people? And so we desire community because we wonder if we're truly accepted. Number three, number four, rather. The last one, appearance. We focus on what we put out to others, right? So like, let's, I just want to put on a, a good show. I want others to think well of me. And so, um, okay, I know I'm not accepted. Uh, and so at, at the very least, I'm going to put a good front on. And, and so um, I'm not going to be truly known because if I was truly known, if people really knew me, well, they for sure would not accept me. And so it's, it's been said often that we want intimacy, but we'll settle for applause. And so in these drivers of just wanting others to either accept us or have a good appearance or self-improvement or self-fulfillment, it, it, it has an impact on how we engage with the world um, and it impacts our interactions with others and even how we see ourselves. And what happens is we spend so much energy either on ourselves or on others' perceptions of us. And it's exhausting. And it leads us to be empty. And so rather than saying, hey, you know, we, we, we're just not going to try or, you know, give up or whatever, I think rather than, than, than trying to just reject, you know, these types of drivers, we need to have a greater compulsion, a greater motivation to propel us in, in where we actually need to go. And so if you have your Bibles, I hope you do. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses um, 11 through 15 to get started here. We're going to see that we're going to be compelled by love. Verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. 
We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. For if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. Verse 14, hold on to this. For the love of Christ controls us or compels us because we've concluded this. The one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so here we are in 2 Corinthians, right? Paul's been writing this letter to this church. There's a lot of issues that they're trying to dive into. And previously, he said, hey, you know, we need to focus beyond what's transient. He said in the verses previous that we looked at last week, our bodies are a tent, right? They're, they're wasting away. We're preparing for a, a, an eternal a building that God is preparing for us. God is preparing us for eternity and eternity for us. And he says, hey, while we're living this life today, we make it our aim, our desire to please the Lord because there is going to be a day where we will die and we will face judgment and we want to be in a position where we are known by God, accepted by God, and so our lives matter now for their impact now, but also for the implications on eternity. And so because of all that, he says, so the therefore is there, Because we want to be driven and know about uh, the day of judgment, because we want to look to what's eternal and not what's temporary, because of all of that, he says we're going to therefore know the fear of the Lord. And that's that's an intimidating phrase, to know the the fear of the Lord. Like you, you are lured in with donuts and mugs and all sorts of things, and now here we are, fear of the Lord, you know, really early here on a Sunday morning. And so what happens is we exclusively focus our energy inward on ourselves. And when we do this, we might think that we become bigger, right? You've made your world so small that it's, that you're big enough in it that you're the most significant person in it. And so we we become very self-focused when we're the center of the world. The challenge with that is we make terrible gods. We are not meant to be the center of the universe. We're not even meant to be the center of our own world. And so what's happened to us collectively and individually is we have forgotten how big God is. We've forgotten how powerful God is. We've forgotten how good God is. We've forgotten how glorious God is compared to us. Like, we know that we share characteristics with God. And we know that we need to be able to relate and understand God. But sometimes in our effort to understand God, we make him so small that we think we're somehow equals. And instead, what this is saying, to know the fear of the Lord, I want to be clear what it's saying what it's not. It's not describing God as being terrible or terrifying. God's not saying, hey, I want you going around just in a catatonic state of fear. The phrase fear of the Lord translates into reverential awe. To behold and to see and to understand something as big and powerful and glorious, to be overwhelmed by it. Not cowering in fear, but but, but inspired 
at its goodness, at its greatness. And so we're to revere God, not fear him. This reverential awe, Proverbs says, if you ever read Proverbs, it says, um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. It's talking about worship and reverence of God. Having a big picture of God helps you understand the world, others, and yourself better because things get into their proper perspective. The Bible even begins not with us, but it begins with God. He's the beginning. And so he's saying things that inspire us, empower us to persuade others to be excited. Right, think about something that you really are excited about, really interested in, and you get compelled to persuade others to be interested in it too. This is what Paul is saying here in these verses. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Because of my reverential awe for how good and powerful and great God is, I want others to know it too. Because I want them to see what I see, to experience what I've experienced, to know what I know. He says this as well, though, as, as big and as powerful as God is, he says as well about us in verse 11. He says what we are is what? Known by God. God being big and powerful, yeah, it means that we're small and weak. Like, go ahead and hold on to that. Compared to God, you are small and weak. I am small and weak compared to God. But don't think for a second that means you are insignificant. You and us and me are incredibly significant to God. He says we're to know the fear of the Lord and, like, like, yes, God is big, and know that he knows you. Not just knows of you. God truly knows you. He is aware of your thoughts, of your fears, of your motivators, of your emotions, of your dreams. God knows you. Everything about you. And so as much as we see God as powerful and infinite, and we should, he relates to us as personal and intimate. So yes, God is powerful and infinite, but he's also personal and intimate. If you take one of these away, either the the, the power and the infinite or or the the personal and the intimate, you take one of those away and you, you, you don't get good news. We say the gospel is good news. You get bad news. Because if you take one of these away, the, the first one you get is if you take away the, the, the big, powerful fear of the Lord, you end up with a very, um, I'll just describe it this way, it's a pregnant word, but, but liberal religion where God is never going to challenge you. He's only going to affirm you at all times. Whatever you think, whatever you want to do, no, no, that is, you do you. God is just going to affirm you, even if it's sin, even if it's leading you to self-destruction, even if it's robbing you of joy. And to be clear, that's not compassionate. That's not love or loving. On the other side, if you, if you um, take away just the personal and intimate knowledge of God that he knows you personally, has compassion for you individually, is that you will find yourself in this religiosity striving with like a very conservative religion where you're just trying to, to please or appease God because, because I know the fear of the Lord. <laughs> Do not want to step out of God's box in that. Where am I standing at this moment? Am I, am I okay? And so you're going to keep striving to appease a God always wondering, 
Have I done enough? Am I good enough? And that will either lead you to self-righteous pride because you somehow think you have, or when we've been in legalistic churches or when we've been in, in, in a religion like that, usually what happens is we end, eventually fail and we lead to despair. And it's crushing and it's exhausting. And so we need to, to hold a reverent fear of the Lord and we need to also remember that we're known by the Lord. If we're gonna have a comprehensive understanding of both God's holiness, that's mean God is set apart, God is different and distinct from us, and if we're gonna know the depths of his mercy to us. And so when we hold the fear of the Lord, knowing the fear of the Lord and knowing that we're known by the Lord, it should lead us to a place of rest of security, and it should propel us, it says, to persuade others to know both the power of God and the peace of God. Don't separate those two. They're both important. They're both necessary. But this doesn't naturally happen. That's why Paul's talking about it in these verses to this church because what happens is because we're consumed by ourselves, we begin to be drawn back inward uh, when God is calling us outward. And so we start to, you know, when, when we're in a bad spot or a rough spot, you know, we just, we, we just want to focus on ourselves for a while, right? A little self-care, a little self-love. There's nothing wrong with, you know, treating yourself every now and then, right? There's nothing wrong with, with, with making sure that you're in a healthy spot, so don't, don't get me wrong there, but what happens is when we are commending ourselves or consumed with, with just love of self, what we are doing is we're trying to fill the emptiness that we feel when we've forgotten how loved we are. And so I need you to love me. I need me to love me. I need others to love me because, because I'm not sure if I'm truly known or truly loved. So I'll, I'll search for it inward or I'll seek it out outward. But really, it's, it's that crying out for emptiness. And so we're not to be consumed with pursuing the approval of others to fill ourselves, but rather we're supposed to be focused, he said, on persuading others, not, not to fill ourselves, but because we, we are full in Christ and we're, we're overflowing with Christ that we have a, a, a desire for others to be fulfilled. And so we get so concerned with appearances and affirmation and approval. And, and here it says, God's concerned with our heart's compulsions. We spend so much energy external and God's like, I want to know the condition of your heart. I don't, wanna, I don't care just what you do. I care why you do it. And so when we both know God and are known by God, we begin to be compelled by something greater than ourselves. Where we see that the powerful God who created the whole universe knows us personally and individually. We see in the gospel and the Bible that he's pursued us. It says here, with the love of Christ so that we can be secure in our individual identity. So we can actually be secure and be moved to a communal purpose. And that's what Paul gets to as he's talking to the church. He says, no, what's gonna drive you, Christian, what's gonna drive you as a church in verse 14 is that you're going to be compelled by, controlled by love. To be compelled by something, uh, it, it says, the word translates to either constrained or governed. 
Anybody like any of those translations? Controlled, compelled, constrained, governed. We don't like any of those. No, we like autonomy more than anything. We hate being out of control. But it's not about being controlled like, like a doll or a robot or, or, you know, just like, oh man, I, I don't want somebody just in control of me. It's more of a force that drives us to action. So when you think about being controlled by love, think motivation, not manipulation. See, ma- manipulation, right, that's, that's when you move people to where they wouldn't want to go if they knew everything, right? But motivation is encouraging and empowering people to go where their actual heart's desires are. To, to, to give that little, that, that oomph, that nudge, that, that power to say, no, you, you want flourishing, let me motivate you, let me compel you, let me, let me dare I say the word say, control you to go where you're going to have the most joy. That's different than, you know, if you knew how this thing was going to end, you totally wouldn't do it. So there's a big distinction there. It's the difference between manipulation and persuasion, right? Persuasion, he uses that word, right? That's showing people what's true and perhaps what they haven't seen. One, like as we said, pushes us to where we wouldn't go otherwise. The other takes us to our deepest desires. He says we're compelled. And in saying that, he's saying there's no other option we have than being controlled by the love of Christ to, to go in this, fear of act, in this course of action. And so while these verses here started with fear, even reverence, that, that can be a positive motivator, right? Fear can keep you from doing some, some <laughs> difficult things, right? Can keep you to be cautious when you need to be. But something that actually gives you life and propels you, love does that. Love is a much more powerful motivator than fear. And he says it's Christ's love for us so we get to live for him. And so when we say that We're compelled by love. I hate to have to regularly contrast what the world talks about with love and and what the Bible is, but they are distinct things because it's not a general bland concept of, you know, you just, I'm ruled by love. I mean, doesn't that always sound great? Like, that ends any argument. Like, why'd you do that? Well, I thought it was most loving. Okay. Didn't make sense to me, but whatever, right? No, love is not just a concept, it's a response to a specific action from a specific person. And so, so we don't get this wrong. We're not saying, hey, you're going to be controlled and compelled by and moved by how much you love God. No, that, that's religion. It's not about how much you love Jesus. Rather, it says, it's Christ's love of us that compels us, not the intensity or even the sincerity of our love for Christ. And we, we see this right here in the text because verse 14 doesn't say, for the love of Christ controls us, therefore we do this, 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 and this to show our love. No, the rest of verses 14 uh, and 15 goes into not what we do because Christ loves us or because we love Christ. It goes to show what Christ has done for us because of his love for us. Christ's love is not vague. It's not purely emotional. It is demonstrated by his sacrificial action. One of Jesus' best friends on earth, the the, the apostle John, says it this way in 1 John 4.10. He says, in this is love. 
Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. If anyone's like, I know what he means, like, good job, you have like big seminary books. So let me explain. Propitiation is a theological word that never gets used. You, you, it's never going to trend on Twitter, okay? It'll be like, hate, I don't know, whatever, whatever trends on Twitter, I don't know. Need to not be on Twitter, Okay. That's for me. You guys do whatever you want. All right. Propitiation is an action. It's an action where the, the wrath that we deserve, the consequences we deserve for our sin is absorbed by another. So it's describing what happens on the cross. When it's talking about Jesus' death in our place, it's not just a good example of sacrifice. It's because of sin, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin, the consequences of sin, the, the, the final destination, if you will, of sin is death and is destruction. But because Jesus was in our place and his propitiation absorbed the wrath that we deserve for our sin the consequences that we deserve of our sins. So in this love is not a feeling, but a sacrifice and action that actually accomplished something. Christ's love for us actually accomplished something. Where we can have reverent awe of the Lord and know that we are known by the Lord because we're no longer concerned about walking in fear of what happens because of our sin, because Christ has already taken care of us. So Christ's love, Jesus' love, talking about Christianity or the gospel or, or God as a God of love cannot be talked about or known or understood in any way the Bible understands it without it being tied to or directed to not just Christ's love of us, but his death for us. That's what we recognize and, and, and remember on Good Friday, is that Good Friday was good because Jesus was on the cross suffering for us instead of us. And so to know Christ's love is, is to know that he died for you. And so while we ask ourselves, are we affirmed? Are we known? Are we loved? If Christ's death for you isn't enough affirmation of your significance? I don't know what else we have for you. The creator of the universe suffered and died for you so that you could have life because he saw you as that significant. Knowing everything he knows about you, knowing the things nobody else knows about you, he said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll suffer that because I want them to be accepted and not alienated. That's what Christ's love does. And so we see love as an action, not just an emotion. And I want to be clear, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be emotional about it. It shouldn't be like, well, you know, I, I know the love of Christ, and um, how do you feel about that? I don't, I think about it. And it's in the book, and I've read it. Like, like loving sacrificial action, it's okay to feel that. So you can have emotions around that. 
It's okay to be perplexed by it. Why, why would you do that for me? It's okay to be elated by it. I'm so thankful that you are. Like, it's okay to process through those emotions. So we're not saying don't be emotional. We should feel. We do feel. And, and, and you know what? We should feel. We do feel. Because we have a God who feels. We have a God who's emotional. The reason that we're compelled by the love of Christ is because it was Christ's love that compelled him to die for us. He was motivated by love. He was compelled by love. And so he says, the outcome of this at the end of verse 15, we're going to have to move on here soon. Our lives are no longer to be self-focused, but they're to be lived for the sake of the one who sacrificed for us. And so this motivates us in a specific way. It motivates us not to earn our sacrifice. What happens sometimes when we grow up in church and we hear about Jesus dying for us is we kind of get the subtle message of like, so Jesus died for you, so you shouldn't do that anymore because remember, he died for you. Don't do that. And it's just kind of this subtle like you're going to earn his sacrifice for you. It doesn't mean you don't live a changed life. We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. But, but nothing you do in your life is paying Jesus back for what he did. Jesus paid it all. So you can't pay Jesus back. You can't, because at the end of the day, you're like, okay, cool, now I don't owe Jesus anything. No, you actually owe Jesus everything. And it's not even like you pay it forward, like, well, you know, Jesus did good by me, so I want to do good to the next person, like it's, like it's cosmic karma right? No, it motivates us to receive what's already been done and to just simply live a life in response to what's already been done. The love of Christ propels us with purpose. The sacrificial love of Christ led him to die for us, to sustain us, to motivate us in our new life for him. And we're going to see that here in these next verses. Verses 16 through 19 says these. It says, from now on, Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is, in a, is a new creation. Hold on to that. I'll say it again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses or sins against them and entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Let's stop. So what happens is that we begin to see new and we're going to be new. To be compelled by the love of Christ who died so that we might live not, no longer selfishly, but to, to live for him for the sake of actually persuading others how much you know, God is glorious and powerful, but also personal and intimate. Right? All of this means that you're going to actually see people differently. He says we don't regard people anymore just based on their appearances. He says this, Paul says this, because he said that's how we used to look at Christ. They used to just look at Christ as, you know, well, he's, he's that humble Galilean peasant. Yeah, he did some miracles. He's a good teacher, but kind of like never really went anywhere, came into Jerusalem. Like the religious people hated him. The political figures couldn't stand him either. Ultimately, he died. And you're like, okay, 
Like that's, that, that, is, that is great, that, that's grand, that's, that's all true, but, but this humble Jesus isn't one that is always going to lead you to, to reverential awe. We know Jesus was humble because Isaiah 53, 2 says this, he doesn't have form or majesty that we should be attracted to him. It actually says like just, just the, the outward appearance of Jesus into human history. While a miracle and important, and don't, please don't, don't get me wrong on, on denigrating or lowering the incarnation, but, but saying like, if just the outward appearance of things isn't going to look that great. Like, I mean, look at the guys that Jesus recruited to be on his leadership team. Former tax collectors, meaning like corrupt gangsters, fishermen, political zealots. Like Jesus went to Portland and was like, hey, Antifa guy, like stop throwing stuff at the courthouse and let's like go on mission together. Actually, that's a good idea. We should do that. <laughs> like maybe that, would, that, that could help. That could help. Couldn't hurt. Unless they start throwing stuff at us. Okay. We need to be motivated by a vision of God that is big and glorious. And Paul says, we used to regard Christ as just kind of humble and insignificant, but we don't, we, don't, we don't regard Jesus that way any longer. And the reason is, is because like, Paul used to be motivated by hate. He was motivated as a religious terrorist. He was motivated um, and on a mission, on a purpose, not to persuade people to trust Jesus, but to persecute people who did. And as, as Paul is on his way to Damascus, he's met by Jesus who's resurrected and was glorious enough, it knocked Paul off his horse, knocked him to the ground, humbled him, and blinded him. That's a glorious view of Jesus. So what changed? Jesus was already glorious before Paul met him. What changed when there was an encounter with the glory of God in Jesus Christ was Paul was changed. Paul went from persecutor to church planter, from proud to humble, from causing suffering in others to suffering on behalf of others. He went from me-centered to Christ-centered in his life. And the reason he said that this can happen is verse 17. That we've been made new. We have more than a new love that drives us. If you're in Christ, you have a new identity that defines us. We need to be made new, and in Christ we are made new. And that means that who you are now is not who you were. And, and so he talks about the old self passing away, and that's because the old self, he's talking about you in sin, meaning your identity in sin. That, that Like I said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are imperfect. And so we, we, we have these lives where, where in, in the eyes of God, that because of our sin, we're not friend but foe. We're not family but orphan. We're not citizen but alien. We're not saint but sinner. We're not innocent but guilty. We're not honored. We're shamed. And if any of those words resonate with you, he's saying that's the old you. It's in sin, and that has passed away. That is gone. That does not define you anymore. 
Um, one of the early church fathers in the first couple centuries um, was St. Augustine of Hippo. He's, uh, he was an African uh, and a, a, just a highly influential thinker uh, and philosopher in the church for years and years. But, but that was after he became a Christian. For most of his life before being a Christian, he was highly promiscuous. And so he, and he traveled a ton. And so after he became a Christian and his life was changed and he lived a life in response to following Jesus, he's back at an island that he'd frequented at before and he's walking through the, the, the town square, this, as the story's known, uh, and one of uh, you know, the, the town uh, prostitutes was pursuing him down the street saying, Augustine, Augustine, it's I! Like, hey, remember me from last time? And, and they kept going down the street and like, like louder and more intense. As the story goes, Augustine turned at a certain point and said, as this person kept saying, Augustine, it is I, Augustine, it is I. And he turned and he said, but it's no longer I. Meaning, I'm not that man anymore. The old has passed, the new has come. And so, if we are new in Christ, it's not just that like you've done enough self-improvement that you're finally better, right? The new you, everybody wants a new you. No, it's new in Christ. And so it's a new identity, not something, again, that you've achieved, but something that you've received. It's not you getting better or self-actualized. Um, it, it's, it's actually belonging to Christ. It means being in Christ's power to be united to Christ's person, to be part of, we call the church the body of Christ. It means you're now part of a, a larger community of faith in Christ where we live in his power united with the Holy Spirit. And all of this is, is preparation for actually spending eternity in the new heavens and new earth. See, the old us in sin is not suitable for what is to come. And the reason being is because of sin, you can think of yourself, if, you know, like if you're a death row inmate, this isn't my um, uh, analogy, but, you know, and if you're, you're pardoned, you're like, oh good, I was pardoned, that's great. You're like, oh my gosh, that's so great that the judge pardoned me. Like, that's so gracious and merciful. And then you think, well, you know, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if the judge, like, invited me into his house and let me live there afterwards? Like, that would be great. Not if you're still a murderer. You need to be made new. The old you, even though you're pardoned, even though you're welcomed into the family, to be in the family, to be part of the family, is a transformation that only God can do for you. And so where, where the gospel is multifaceted and it kind of hits different aspects of who we are, we, we use words like justification to define our legal standing. We use sanctification to describe kind of being cleaned and being, being washed and being changed. Um, adoption determines what family we're in. We're in the family of God. Kingdom, like, like that is our destination that we're going as citizens. Paul uses this word to emphasize reconciliation because he's talking about relationship. Yes, all those other words are significant and they're, they're for another sermon, but, but th- this word reconciliation is where foes get turned into friends. It implies estrangement, right? You can't reconcile where there's not already separation. And sin separates. And we see this and we know this in marriages that are broken. We see this in friendships that disintegrate, in partnerships in business or life or leadership, right? You know, where these things happen, where there's, there's, there's a state of alienation, right? There's no trust, there's no affection, no respect, right? Lines of communication are down, walls are up. 
We all know this. We've all experienced this. In this case, Paul's talking about the separation that's happened because of sin between us and God and the reconciliation that's necessary for us to have peace with God. Usually, if, if somebody's in the wrong, right, in causing an issue, then right, it's kind of on them to pursue. Well, in this case, to be explicitly clear, 100% of the fault is on us. God has not sinned against us or wronged us. God is not unjust. And yet, God's the one who pursues us. He's the one that comes after us. We're at fault, but he's the one that pursues. He bridges the gap. He, he closes the separation that we could not, and we can't deal with our own sin. We cannot fix what our sin is broken. And so he says, in order for sin to be dealt with, the separation has to be closed. Our debt of sin has to be paid. It can no longer be counted against us. It's a legal term. We see debt here, right, uh, in these verses um, where you know, the debt of God, uh, God is cleared. The debt of sin has been cleared because it's been paid. The only way we can come back to God is when our sin has been paid for. And so he's accomplished this and he's entrusted us with this message and he talks about it in these last verses as we close because God can't just forgive and forget. Sin has to be dealt with. And he tells us about it here in verse 20. Because we've been made new, because the love of Christ controls us, because we're known by God and know the fear of the Lord, it says this in verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is amazing that God, like in his plan of redemption, in how he reconciles, in how he loves, in how he pursues, like how does he do that? How does he call people to join the kingdom? I mean, the Holy Spirit can work in a variety of ways, but the way he says it is he does it through us, through you, through me. Like, the, I say this often, but the fact that we are a church here in Marysville, Washington in 2021 is because for a couple thousands of years, people across generations, languages, races, cultures, nationalities, and continents acted as ambassadors for Christ, made appeals, imploring people, to know the fear of the Lord and know they are known by the Lord, to be compelled by the love of Christ, to no longer be who they are in sin, but walk in the freedom of being made new. He, he doesn't just say, hey, you used to be an enemy combatant. I have forgiven you. You're gonna be, you're gonna be we're gonna allow you to be in the kingdom, but I'm kind of keeping my eye on you. No, what God does is he takes us in our sin and our rebellion and rejection of him. He makes us new and then says, not only are you in the family, not only are you in the kingdom, I'm gonna now have you as my ambassador, my representative of the kingdom. He's not ashamed of you. He's not like, oh, that's that family member that we just, uh, we just kind of put them in the back. He said, no, I, I want them right out in front 
as my ambassadors to implore people who are empty, who are longing, who feel like they're not good enough, who know they're not accepted, and are so consumed with their appearances to stop being controlled by love of self and to be compelled by the love of Christ so they can have joy, so they can have life. And he's like, and this isn't anything you've done to, to earn. It was, I, I just saw this in the news um, this week that um, Mackenzie Scott, she's the, um, uh, you might know her as like the former Mrs. Jeff Bezos. And in the divorce, she got, you know, Amazon money. Like lots of it. And she said that, I, I, don't, I don't know her whole story, but apparently she's going to be a philanthropist. And so she's like, I got all this money, and what am I going to do with it? I'm going to give it away. That's awesome. She's probably going to keep enough to have like a nice house and like a nice car and stuff too, I'm sure. Okay. But she, she just married like a high school science teacher. And I don't know his name. I think it'd be awesome if it was Scott, because then it'd be Scott Scott, because I'm assuming he's changed his name. I don't know. But, but he's like, I'm so excited. I'm like, yeah, bro, of course you're excited. Um, you know, but he's like, I'm so excited because we're just going to give money away. Like, he didn't do anything to earn it. He just receives it and now gets to be an ambassador of it. That's what we have in the gospel is that we have done nothing to earn the kingdom of God. Everything has been done by Christ in our place who even though he was sinless, it said. Jesus is sinless. Don't hear anyone online or anybody calling themselves a pastor saying Jesus is sinned or Jesus needs to repent. Jesus is sinless. And God said he is going to be the sacrifice for our sins and he's going to bear the consequences of your sins. And in doing that, he's going to give you his righteousness. And so this is what theologians for uh, hundreds of years have called the great exchange. Where we show up with sin, we give our shame, and we receive his righteousness. Right? You're showing up to the potluck with just a casserole of sin, and you're laying it out there. It probably has raisins in it, right? And you get to receive like an amazing feast. Like, that's a great exchange, right? You're showing up to this deal with the worst of who you are. And God says, I'm taking that. I'm going to give you my best. That's why it's a great exchange. That's why it's good news. That's what we call it the gospel. You want to come to the kingdom of Christ? Bring your worst and know God is going to give you your best. He's going to give you his best so that we are no longer in sin but we are in him and so we we look at this cross and we take communion remembering his body broken for us his blood shed for us when we take communion and we see that jesus takes our sin in exchange for his righteousness so that we can live to point others to him and so i want to bring it back to that first question i asked us when we started here what now drives us what motivates us? If it's Christ's work for us, it's so much better than anything we could hope to achieve. Right? You want to be driven by self-fulfillment? God says, no, no, no. I'm going to give you peace and wholeness. 
You want to be driven by self-improvement? God says, stop. I'm just going to make you new. You want to be driven by acceptance of others? God says, I've welcomed you into my kingdom, into my family. You want to be driven by appearances? He said, don't worry, I've, I've clothed you in the righteousness of Christ. So you don't have to worry anymore about what you look like or what you're putting out there because of what I put on you. All of this happens as we simply trust Jesus.